This is an ABC podcast. All hands on deck across New South Wales, Victoria and Tasmania as communities help one another deal with rising floodwaters. We got up this morning, it was like, wow, yeah, that's, wow, you know, it's scary. So, and we'll cross the road, there's probably 50 people sandbagging the neighbour across the road. Everyone did a great job, everyone stuck together and it was really good. And Camelier's search for the perfect name for the newest addition to its caravan of camels. Look, we had a few Donald Humps. Thankfully, they weren't chosen. We had a few Peanuts, Stuarts, Caramels. Yeah, that's just to name a few. But yeah, there's, there's a lot of good names. I'm Sinead Mangan, and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wadjuk Country. We start with the ongoing flood situation across the southeast of the country. In the New South Wales Central West, an evacuation order is still in place for around 250 homes and businesses in the town of Forbes. The Lachlan River is expected to peak later tonight or early tomorrow. Through northern Victoria, at least 500 homes are inundated and a further 500 are isolated as rivers continue to rise. Emergency services are warning even though the rain has mostly eased, more flooding is to come as rising waters push downstream. There are emergency orders in place for Charlton, Seymour, Rochester, Vanalla, Wedderburn and Murchison and residents in these areas are being urged to evacuate if it's safe to do so. Here are residents of Seymour earlier today reacting to the rising floodwaters in their town. Because this is my family home, my father built this house and um, lived here most of my life and yeah it's never been water in it before. In the 74 floods, it just lapped the gate here and it lapped my front door and lapped my back door, but it didn't get in the house. It's in the house this time. So, yeah, a bit distressing. I did put photos, etc. up. They're always the most valuable that you can't replace. And there is old furniture that was too heavy to lift up. So I don't know what condition it will be in. Anything lightweight was up high, so... But, yeah, it's older furniture that I'll be worried about. It's just all gone. Oh, dear. When they said it was receding, I thought, oh, OK, I'll come back down. And, yeah, obviously it's... Because um, I had all boxes stacked up over the window, and it looks like it's gone right through. So, anyhow, not much we can do about it. I'll have to wait till it um, recedes and see what the damage is, I suppose. Not much else I can do. Well, let's go to Tasmania now to the Meander Valley in the north of the state. It's been all hands on deck with the community dealing with the largest rainfall it's seen in a few years. 390 mills fell in the north of the state overnight and the Bureau is predicting more is to come. The town of Deloraine has been hit with record floods and evacuation centres have been set up for those whose properties are in danger. Meander Valley Mayor Wayne Johnston was up in the small hours of the morning sandbagging to do what he could to to protect property and he joins me now. An eventful 24 hours there, Wayne. How's the community going? Uh, very eventful. Um, these uh, flood events don't come along very often, thank goodness. Um, this is a probably the largest one in, in living history that we know of, that people can remember. Certainly higher than the 2016 flood. Um, look, community, community-wise, communities band together. Um, if somebody's in need, uh, our little community of Meander itself is only a township of about 300 in the catchment of the Meander River. We could see that the uh, local shop was potentially going to go under and a couple of houses that were nearby. So the uh, 
the boys and the girls started uh, getting sandbags ready yesterday and worked into about three three o'clock this morning when um, we just couldn't save the water from getting in because it, it just kept coming up. But right across uh, the municipality, Mole Creek, um, out through Western Creek, through to Bracknell and now into Deloraine, um, you know, the community have come together and helping each other out. And hopefully there's been no loss of life and little damage to infrastructure, but I know there has been, but certainly certainly no loss of life, which is the main thing. You've set up evacuation centres. Are there many people at them? No, there hasn't been many, which is, I guess, a good thing. There was certainly a, an alert went out yesterday afternoon to for those people on from Meander through to the Carrick area, which is on the border of the Meander River all the way, to evacuate if they felt unsafe. I think we might have had four people turn up the evacuation centre in total, which is good to hear and obviously people uh, in some places went to stay with family and friends i haven't heard of a lot of infrastructure demo sorry housing damage as such um the council officers and scs were out yesterday and the day before door knocking and letting people know that um you know this flood event was happening caravans were shifted and all those bits and pieces were done early which is really good and um, tell me about the the river itself how swollen is it Okay, I'm actually at my place because I, I, I farm at Meander, uh, mixed farming, and I, I'm lucky enough to have a house on the banks of the river. So I'm actually looking at it as we speak. It's flowing at a fair pace. Uh, the river's 62 kilometres long from start to the finish where it ends up in the uh, Trevellan Dam and the gorge at Launceston. It's flowing pretty well. Um, it's going down at the moment, which is a good thing. It peaked at 5 o'clock th- this morning at uh, 3.7 metres. Um, it's supposed to peak in Delrain or has peaked in Delrain just over two hours ago, uh, 0.7 of a metre higher than in the flood event in 2016. But um, luckily with our river, it goes up and down pretty quick. I guess we often look at the mainland and the floods that New South Wales and Queensland and now into Victoria suffer and they seem to be gone for, mm. for a long time for those people up over there. We don't have those long flood events. Ours are up and down pretty quick on our on smaller rivers. Tell me about Deloraine. Have you managed to get there? I know that they've <laughs> suffered. No. Do you laugh? So obviously that's not an easy thing to <laughs> no, do. No, I, I haven't. That's my next uh, uh, trip after I finish uh, speaking to you. I, one access is, is cut off at the moment. I'll go the back roads to get in there. Um, that's our largest or one of our largest population centres. Deloraine, it's a great little town for arts and culture and it's the hub of the rural community in, in the Amanda Valley. Um, again, they were prepared. Um, but I think it was certainly far higher than um, than I guess a lot of people thought it would get. But uh, the Bureau of Meteorology did a lovely job, a marvellous job in keeping us informed, which I guess has um, made a difference to potentially the the, the, the lack of of lives being in danger. Mm. So, but yeah, no Delrayne, it'll be a, certainly a sight for the river to be tearing down through Delrayne at the moment. Yeah. He made mention there of the 2016 floods in Latrobe. Well, that's yep. what the area that kind of the main focus was on. Do they yep. loom large for people in the area? Well, they do because um, while Latrobe, the Mersey catchment uh, was flooded and the, the township of Latrobe was flooded, it was the same rain event that actually caused us to have floods down through Delrayne as well. Um, that was an event that occurred really quickly that the uh, Bureau hadn't predicted. So therefore, landowners um, and people with stock didn't get to move their stock out quick enough. There was a lot of loss of cattle and sheep in that event. I haven't heard of any such losses this time around. 
uh, haven't well I've spoken to my farmer colleagues and they haven't been reporting any so I guess we had that potentially three to four day period of of the bureau saying look this is going to be a large rain event we saw it coming through from places south australia and we saw the one coming down the east coast and they pretty much converged over the top of us so mm. um yeah a lot of rain but it, it was a constant rain it was it just continued hour after hour after hour and yes um yeah we're, we're not necessarily used to that in tassie well thanks very much for talking to australia wide and um, wish you all the best with the next coming days I appreciate it. And look, to everyone else out there, as I said, we, we look at New South Wales, Queensland and the floods that they've had over there. We, we really feel sorry for, for those people that are suffering time and time again. And, um, yeah, I um, hope everyone, everyone stays, stays safe. You're listening to Australia Wide. On ABC Radio. While large parts of New South Wales, Victoria and Tasmania grapple with major rains, scientists have taken a closer look at the cataclysmic flood event in Lismore in February. Flood modelling shows it could have been far worse. Hydrologists have modelled what they call a probable maximum flood for Lismore. And what that means is the largest flood that could conceivably occur in any one possible spot. For Lismore, that is water levels that are two metres higher than what was experienced in the Wilsons River in February. As Leah White reports, it's a daunting prospect for a region that's bracing itself for a third consecutive La Nina. The February flood in Lismore has been described as a disaster of biblical proportions. It resulted in multiple deaths, widespread destruction and billions of dollars worth of damage. And yet the scale of the disaster could have been much worse, according to flood modelling. It points to a theoretical flood height, known as a probable maximum flood, of between 16 and 16 and a half metres. That's two metres higher than the February flood. So the probable maximum flood, or the PMS for short, is the upper limiting magnitude that a flood could possibly take at a given location for a given area. That was Professor Rory Nathan, who teaches hydrology and water resources at Melbourne University. He also wrote the national guidelines for calculating PMFs. So you first start with what's the upper limit of rainfall that you could, that could physically be expected at a given location over a given duration. And you take that maximum possible rainfall and you put it into a, a model that represents the conversion of rainfall to runoff and you make some very conservative assumptions. You assume, for instance, that the rainfall lands on a very, very wet catchment and that the vast majority of that rainfall uh, runs off in a flood peak. So you're taking the maximum possible rainfall, you're assuming it's landing on the wettest possible catchment you're making some other assumptions about how that rainfall is distributed in time. And again, they're conservatively high. And as a result of that, you end up with a flood estimate that is pretty well the, the maximum possible you can expect. What is that figure used for in practical terms? The most common usage for the PMF is in things like um, d- designing dams. That's possibly the only kind of practical application of PMF is in dam design where it's driven by the, the need to avoid any loss of life or threat to life. And typically, the, when our largest dams, if, if ever one of our largest dams failed, and it hasn't, it's never happened yet in Australia, uh, a large dam failing, 
um, the life loss would be very considerable and the environmental damage um, would be uh, extraordinary, like it would be uh, truly devastating. A worst-case flood is a daunting prospect for a region that is still recovering while simultaneously bracing for a third consecutive La Nina with already saturated soil, creeks and catchments. But how likely is a probable maximum flood? In terms of likelihood, one way of thinking about this is the PMF has a probability of being exceeded. It's sort of a one-in-a-million kind of chance. So uh, in any one year the likelihood that a PMF would occur is of the order of one in a million. If the Lismore flood was one in a thousand, the PMF is sort of a thousand times rarer again. So it really is something that is extremely remote likelihood. And in fact, I don't know of anywhere in the world uh, that would use a PMF uh, to, as a design standard for dwellings in a floodplain, for instance. It's, it's just far too rare an event uh, to be considered for that purpose. Professor Nathan said of more concern was the increasing likelihood of record-breaking floods due to climate change. We talk about these floods like uh, being a one in a thousand event and they sound extremely remote. But the probabilities we're talking about are are annual probabilities. So in any one year, it's one in a, a thousand chance of these events occurring. But if you keep year after year, if you then keep, if you like, throwing the dice to see whether one of these events would occur, over a hundred year period, a one-in-a-thousand event has a one-in-ten chance of occurring. So if you're living on a floodplain and you're living on a floodplain for 100 years, there's a, a one-in-ten chance that you will experience an event as extreme as one-in-a-thousand. And under climate change, that probability will probably more likely to shift to one in, uh, a one-in-four chance rather than a one-in-ten chance. With widespread flooding already occurring in other parts of the state, the question is, will Lismore flood again? The third La Nina does not mean automatically that there will be a heap of flooding. It means that the dice are loaded in that direction, but it's a matter of probabilities, not certainties. That was former State Emergency Service Deputy Director and Flood Specialist Dr Chaz Keyes. And it doesn't necessarily say that the flooding that occurs is going to be extreme. Uh, You can get La Nina's with no flooding, and you can get El Nino's, the opposite, which tend to drought, with floods. But you're more likely to get flooding and severe flooding during a La Nina period than an El Nino or a, or a, or a neutral period. Interesting perspective there from Dr. Chaz Keyes, ending that story from Leah White. This is ABC Australia Wide. Broken Hill in New South Wales has a long history with camels and the Afghan cameleers that took care of them. Even today, the cameleer tradition is alive and well. So there was great excitement when the newest addition to the caravan of camels was born. The next question was, though, what was what would they name him? Yusuf Saudi went out to find more. It began when Silverton Outback Camels birthed their first calf and Peter Devine needed to decide a name. She created a community call-out through local media for Broken Hill to provide ideas. Look, we had a few Donald Humps. Thankfully, they weren't chosen. We had a few Peanuts, Stuarts, Caramels. Yeah, that's just to name a few, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of good names. But the name Nuller was drawn out of the hat. 
And Peter says she was lucky to have received it. It's just easy. Sylvan and Broken Hill are renowned for having camels out here and there's such a big history of it. So, you know, to have a local family come up with the name, it's just perfect. Janet Shamrose suggested the name. She's the wife of Bobby Shamrose, who's a direct descendant of the Afghan Cameliers. She names it after his Muslim name, Amanullah. Well, there was a connection with the camels, as my husband's father being a camelier, and my husband's name is Amin Nula. And I thought, well, we've just had a great grandson and called him Amin. His name's Amin, so I thought, Nula, that's a good name for the camel. <laughs> Bobby Shamrose says he was delighted to find out they picked his name. I was a bit jealous because <laughs> I, I wanted to name it Warrior after me great great uncle, and she beat me to it, so. <laughs> That's what's happened. So I think she wanted to name the camel after me. I reckon it's good to name a camel after the Afghans. Just something new out there, I think. Camel farm, you know, you have a camel named after me, that's good. But where did the name Nullah come from? Amanullah himself is supposedly named after King Amanullah Khan. He was a former ruler of Afghanistan from 1919 to 1929 who helped lead the country to full independence from British influence. Bobby says he's always been told his name came from royalty. I'm supposed to be named after a prince. Afghan prince. Afghan prince, so I believe. Whether that's right or not, I don't know, but that's what my uncle used to say to me. You're named after an Afghan prince. For more than 50 years between the 1860s and 1930s, the Cameliers were involved in transporting goods and materials across the country. Bobby Shamrose says they were an important part in building Australia together. If it weren't for them, not only them, there was a few white cameliers around as well. If it weren't for the cameliers, I call them cameliers, the, all of them, because they all done the same sort of work. My dad, a lot of them were called cans, you know, cans. Uh, it's got to be recognised on account of all the good work that the cameliers done around here way back in the early days. I think the good work they've done to open up this country, not just around here, but all around Western Australia, all over the place. Camels travel for miles and miles. Bobby Shamrose is now the caretaker of the Broken Hill Afghan Mosque, one of the oldest surviving mosques in Australia built by the Cameliers. They were part of introducing Islamic beliefs to the region. He is calling for further recognition of the Cameliers, like a monument at the mosque or the Broken Hill entrance to demonstrate their history. They can make them. Even down in the yard here, a camel with an old Afghan hanging on to him. It wouldn't be hard to do. Someone with a bit of brains, I wouldn't be able to do it. But, you know, these architects, I'd be able to do it. Peter Devine says the baby camel has been a tourism drawcard for them. She says with birthing season during September and October, she's expecting two other camels. And so it was um, pretty good viewing for some of our tourists that were riding a camel and, and saw the baby being born. It's not often a lot of people get to see a baby camel, so it worked out perfect timing for us during the school holidays. But currently, Janet Shamrose is excited to meet Nulla with her family. Well, I hope he's as nice a person as a camel as what my husband is. It's a beautiful name. 
What a lovely thing to say. Yusuf Saidi with that story from Broken Hill. And finally, we're going to head down to the wharf in Darwin in the Northern Territory. Our reporter, Matt Brown, was there to jump on board commercial fishing boat FV North Islander as it was getting ready to catch an endangered species. Strange, I hear you say, but it's all in the name of research, with scientists on board teaming up with professional fishers to try and catch, tag and learn more about sawfish. First up, Matt spoke to Catherine Winchester from the Northern Territory Seafood Council. So this mission is very exciting for us. We've got a commercial fishing um, vessel heading out, out of season, to its fishing grounds um, and a little bit beyond its fishing grounds with scientists to try and catch what they normally try to avoid, which is the um, globally significant species sawfish, uh, which is protected um, and endangered in some parts of the world. And so why are you doing this? <laughs> because it is such an important species. So the Northern Territory in Northern Australia is home to a lot of species, which elsewhere in the world um, the numbers have come down. And there's lots of information gaps. So for us as an industry interacting with such an important species, we need to be confident and sure that our interactions aren't having a negative impact on its population. So to fill some of the information gaps, um, we've been talking to former and current professional fishers to collect their knowledge because they've got decades and decades of experience interacting um, or seeing these creatures out in their environment. Um, And then we're trying to get some satellite tags on some adult sawfish to actually understand where do they go. Not many people know, do they go offshore, how long for? So we're hoping to um, get a tag on some uh, adult sawfish and find out exactly where do they go. And from the fishos that you've spoken to and interviewed as part of this process, uh, what sort of interactions have they had with this species? I know it's something they try to avoid, but no doubt it, it's happened over the years. Oh, it definitely has happened. So some of the fishers um, we're talking to started fishing in, like when fishing commercially up here just started, so in like the early 70s and even the late 60s. And so initially those interactions where the species wasn't protected or people weren't aware of their vulnerable um, or the vulnerability of these species, and they would take the sawfish, so sawfish food, the rostrum was also collected as a trophy. Um, And some of the fishermen would say, because these animals would get so big, that they were the thing that was feared more than crocodiles out there for the barramundi fishing so uh, avoiding sawfish from a safety perspective was happening early on but then later on the laws changed to protect the species where you can no longer take uh, or capture the species and so from there on the industry's really been about um, reporting their interactions with the species but also um, avoiding them so it takes a lot of time when you get things in your net that you don't want because you have to take them out and when they've got um, a rostrum or I guess the nose of the sawfish which is can be quite long and looks a bit like a chainsaw with all of its teeth sticking out that connected in a net takes even longer than it does to get rid of a fish species that you don't want that might be in your net so um, yeah the fishermen um, uh, have a lot of knowledge with regards to times of years or particular areas um, or habitats where they just don't want to go fishing because the interaction levels might be too high. Also on board the North Islander and getting ready to head offshore is uh, Dr Vinay Udiawa, a research scientist who is with the Australian Institute of Marine Scientists. Tell us about your job over the next few weeks. Um, So my job essentially is um, 
learning from the the commercial fishers of how they how they operate. Uh, but uh, our our goal is essentially trying to deploy um, at least six satellite tags on adult. Uh, sawfish, either uh, a green sawfish, which is a, a, a one of the largest sawfish species uh, that we find quite regularly up in the territory, um, or the uh, large tooth sawfish, which is the the freshwater sawfish that are in areas where um, f- commercial fishers often uh, interact with sawfish during commercial operations. How big can these fish get? So these fish can get up to about seven meters uh, as as big adults, uh, but we're hoping that we don't encounter something that big. Uh, we're targeting uh, individuals that are about two to three meters because uh, that's about the life stage where they transition from a, a coastal movement to doing these offshore movements, and that's the that's the information gap we have at the moment. We don't really know what they do once they get to that size and where they go uh, during their offshore movements. So hoping. Uh, putting tags on them at that stage might tell us something about uh, how far they the, they go offshore, how long they stay there, uh, and again gives us information about likelihood of encountering other uh, threatening processes that might happen in deeper waters. A seven meter sawfish, that's a whopper. I had no idea they got that big. Thanks to Matt Brand for that story from Darwin. And that's all from Australia Wide's producer Alex Hyman and I for this week. We hope you have a lovely weekend. Cheerio. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.